This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So, you ready to hear it? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Five years ago, when my oldest son was three, he made a brief appearance on this show looking at the stars through our telescope. It was an episode we called Peering into Space. And recently, I played it back for him. Oh, now I want to see. Oh, I see a red belt. Where? Where? The, Where's the Ryan's belt? There's one star there. Oh, yeah. And another star oh, there. Yeah. One, two, three. On that episode, we explored what it is about space that ignites our curiosity. What's your favorite star? Um, Polaris and Sirius are my favorite stars. Maybe Sirius is Polaris's neighbor. Whatever happened to that telescope, by the way? I think I got, I think the legs broke. You mean the tripod? Yeah. I think it got smashed in the closet. <laughs> well, Mommy threw it away, I think. I saw her secretly throwing it away. That last voice was my younger son, by the way. And as you can tell, our family stargazing has waned a little bit over the past five years. But in that same time, there's been an explosion of new information about our solar system, our galaxy, and our universe. Do you still think space is cool? Yeah. What's cool about space to you? Aliens. I hope they exist. Yeah. Would you ever want to meet an alien? Yes. We would trade baseball cards. We'd have a lemonade stand. We would be best friends. Wow. That's pretty cool. So on the show today, we're going to pick up where we left off, exploring the vastness of space, finding new areas of discovery, and revisiting what we thought we knew about the universe. The last few years have completely changed what's possible and viewed as possible in our understanding of the universe on large scales. Absolutely. This is Alan Adams. He's a theoretical physicist. And I spent the past 20 years studying uh, gravitational physics and quantum mechanics, and I teach at MIT. And Alan's really interested in gravitational waves, a phenomenon that was entirely theoretical until just a few years ago. So Einstein developed the theory of relativity, which is our modern theory of gravity and how it works. And built into the equations of relativity are exactly the gravitational waves that we're talking about. A gravitational wave is basically a ripple in space caused by a massive disturbance. And they're a really big deal because they allow us to see back in time and even unlock some of the mysteries of the origins of our universe. So, for example, one huge collision that was detected in 2017, it was a collision that happened 130 million years ago, far outside of our galaxy. Out there in the darkness, there are these two really wonderfully strange objects. Each of them is a failed star, a star that has lived its life and blown off its outer core and collapsed, leaving behind only an incredibly dense mass of neutrons. And the key thing here is that um, when they start out as as an honest-to-God star, these are huge, young, big bucks of stars just really ravenously eating through their nuclear fuel. Uh, And then, by the end of their life, there are these dying hulks, these little wrecks, Uh, but not just any dying wreck. They're incredibly dense. So as they get smaller and smaller and spend off the last remaining little ounces of whatever's left, they collapse down and form a neutron star with nothing but neutrons and nothing to cook. And so there are these final coals of the fire of an earlier star. So these are the, the, the embers of two stars hanging out 
130 million years ago in the galaxy, and what happened? These two coals find each other and orbit. And as they orbit each other, they slowly, slowly get closer and closer. And the reason they get closer itself is really cool. They get closer and closer because they're moving through something, space itself. And as they move through space, they send off ripples Hmm. in that space. And those ripples we call gravitational waves. They spread out like waves in a pond if you throw a rock in. And as they spread out, they carry away energy, just like a wave in a pond carries away energy. And because that energy is going away, those two neutron stars fall closer and closer and closer together. So as those two get closer and closer and start revolving around each other faster and faster, with every revolution, they start pushing off, sending off more waves, like someone putting their hand through a pond. And those waves spread out. And as they go faster and faster, as the two neutron stars go around each other faster and faster, the waves that they send out get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger until finally the two neutron stars collide. And what happens is one of the most spectacular events we know in the universe. A huge set of waves is launched out into space in every direction, and it will continue moving at the speed of light all the way across the cosmos. And nothing, nothing can stop the gravitational wave. Wow. So that collision happened 130 million years ago. The waves from it didn't reach Earth until August 17th, 2017. Wow. Now, the technology that even allowed that wave to be detected here on Earth is still brand new. Scientists only discovered the very first gravitational wave two years before, in 2015. Alan Adams picks up that story from the TED stage. Let me give you a sense of the timescale at work here. 1.3 billion years ago, Earth had just managed to evolve multicellular life. Since then, Earth has made and evolved corals, fish, plants, dinosaurs, people, and even the internet. And about 25 years ago, a particularly audacious set of people decided that it would be really neat to build a giant laser detector with which to search for the gravitational waves from things like colliding black holes. Now, most people thought they were nuts, um, but enough people realized that they were brilliant nuts that the U.S. National Science Foundation decided to fund their crazy idea. So, after decades of development, construction and imagination and breathtaking amount of hard work, they built their detector called LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. In early September of 2015, LIGO turned on for a final test run while they sorted out a few lingering details. And on September 14th of 2015, just days after the detector had gone live, the gravitational waves from those colliding black holes pass through the Earth, and they pass through you and me, and they pass through the detector. Wow. So so it took 1.3 billion years for that wave from these two black holes uh, to reach us here on Earth. And and what happened? Did Did it do anything to Earth? Did it change anything? Well, very literally, every one of us, everyone who's listening right now, stretched just a little tiny bit in one direction and contracted just a little tiny bit in the other direction and did that back and forth a few times. But it was so small that nothing, nothing on Earth, no instrument that we've ever built could possibly measure the effect it had on you. But obviously the the LIGO detectors, which I guess are like these like three-mile-long tubes in the middle of ones in Louisiana and ones in Washington State, right? Right. Those detectors did pick up on that uh, that teeny wave. Exactly. That teeny tiny motion told us a tremendous amount about the collision. It told us how many objects there were, two. It told us how heavy each of them was. It told us how much matter was totally destroyed and turned into the ripples in space and time that spread out and finally hit our detector. It told us how far away it was. Hmm. So presumably, now that we have this technology, 
to detect gravitational waves, are we just experiencing them all the time? Like, presumably these huge massive events are happening, you know, at least once a week, once a month in distant space billions of years ago? Yeah. Presumably, yes. <laughs> so the the LIGO collaboration has been overwhelmed in dealing with the data that they have. Hmm. Part of what's so amazing about this whole story is no one expected to find anything. No huh. one expected to detect gravitational waves. And already in the years since, we've detected event after event and learned unbelievable things about the universe way more than I think anyone really expected. This is the bit that really brings me to tears. The binary neutron star event, where two binary neutron stars collided, not only could we learn how heavy they were, we also learned, independent of every other measurement that's ever been made about cosmology, we were able to measure the Hubble constant and put constraints on the acceleration of the universe. Wait a minute. You're talking about this idea that the universe is constantly expanding. Yeah, and you can test that by looking at the data from LIGO. You can test the rate of expansion and how it's evolved on cosmological scales by listening to the black holes. Because Hubble's theory was that the expansion was happening, but it was slowing down. But now we actually think that the expansion is happening, but it's speeding up. Exactly. And the reason we believe that for the past many years is because we've been able to establish through long effort and lots of detailed observation distances to galaxies and then measure the light coming from distant galaxies during the explosion of stars. Yeah. What's amazing to me about the neutron star event is that just by looking at that one event and the gravitational waves coming off of it, we've got almost as accurate a prediction of the rate of the acceleration of the universe. It's a truly astonishing thing. So through gravitational waves, we can absolutely confirm affirmatively that the universe is expanding at a faster and faster and faster pace every moment. I'm a scientist. I never say absolutely. But with that said, gravitational waves have now given us a completely independent measure of the acceleration of the universe, hmm. telling us that the universe is expanding faster and faster. And it's an utterly, completely different measurement than we've ever used to make that prediction before. And it agrees beautifully. And in a few years, with just a little more data, I'm sure the gravitational wave evidence is gonna be by far the strongest evidence for the rate of acceleration of the universe. When we come back, Alan explains how gravitational waves can not only teach us about past events in the universe, but even about the very first event, the Big Bang. On the show today, we're peering deeper into space. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Pharma, representing America's biopharmaceutical companies and scientists like Maysoon Shamali, who develops targeted cancer therapies. I think of myself as finding the needle in a very, very large haystack. I have the belief that I can make a difference, that if I work hard enough, I can find it and I can develop a therapy for it. To hear more from researchers like Maysoon and the patients that inspire them, visit goboldly.com slash listen. Thanks also to Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're peering deeper into space. And as physicist Alan Adams was saying just before the break, the detection of gravitational waves by LIGO is helping us observe the universe in an entirely new way. Here's Alan again on the TED stage. 
That's the lasting importance of LIGO. It's a way that lets us hear the universe and hear the invisible. And there's a lot out there that we can't see. The Big Bang. I would love to be able to explore the first few moments of the universe, but we'll never see them because the Big Bang itself is obscured by its own afterglow. With gravitational waves, we should be able to see all the way back to the beginning. Our challenge now is to be as audacious as possible. Thanks to LIGO, we know how to build exquisite detectors that can listen to the universe, to the rustle and the chirp of the cosmos. Our job is to dream up and build new observatories, a whole new generation of observatories, on the ground, in space. I mean, what could be more glorious than listening to the Big Bang itself? Wait, wait. Gravitational waves could show us the Big Bang? Oh, yes. Yeah. That could happen? It could absolutely happen. The early universe started with the Big Bang. We've all heard this. Sure. And in that Big Bang, lots and lots of the elements were produced. Hydrogen and helium filling up the universe. And hot hydrogen glows, and it absorbs light. So what that means is we'll never see the Big Bang itself because the universe was so hot that it was glowing like a candle, and as a result, we can't see past it. We can't see through it. Hmm. So the universe is opaque to us from 100,000 years back to the beginning. Hmm. But gravitational waves go through everything. They go straight through the glowing hot gas of the early universe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what they let us do is see back way past that barrier in time and let us, in principle, touch back to the very earliest moments of everything around us. You know, Alan, some people hear gravitational waves and they're like, nah, you know, you know, what, like, what's a big deal? Because it's it doesn't feel real to all of us, right? So, I mean, what does this even tell us about where where we come from or or where we're going? Oh my God! It tells you all of the most important things in the world. So, to start, it tells you where the universe is going. It's gonna expand and expand and expand and get really cold and lonely and big and empty. Ooh. Yeah, that's really horrible. It also tells you that that's not gonna happen for an extraordinarily long time, so don't worry about it too much. That's, that's a good thing. It tells you that everything around you came from a Big Bang and then stars cooking up lots of stuff like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and all the things that make up the food you eat except for all the metals and the trace stuff, which came from the collision of two neutron stars, which is completely insane. Because think about this. Where you came from is not Iowa. Where you came from is a star exploding, creating all sorts of elements, having them collapse back into another star. Then it explodes, and it creates more elements, and they fall into another star. But this one turned into a neutron star, turned into a big lump of nothing but neutrons, collided with another one, and shot out a huge set of waves. And that is absolutely staggeringly cool. How can we ask, why is this important? What else could possibly be more important than understanding where we come from? Yeah. You're really intense, you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it, though. I'm, I'm pretty blown away, too. Good. It is freaking amazing. That's theoretical physicist Alan Adams. You can find his full talk at TED.com. Hey, by the way, do you think any gravitational waves passed through us during, during the interview? An uncountable infinity of gravitational waves have passed through our bodies as huh. we've carried on this oh interview. Gosh. Every time you wave your hand, you're creating gravitational waves. Oh. They're insignificantly tiny, but they're there. In the same way that there are always ripples on the surface of the ocean. The ocean is never still. The universe is never quiet. Well, I always loved the stars. I remember clearly when I was about 10 years old for the first time, I went camping. This is astrophysicist Sarah Seeger. And one, for whatever reason, in the middle of the night, I stepped out of the tent and I looked up and, wow. I saw so many stars, it just took my breath away. And all I could think about was, wow, like, what is this? You know, what's out there? And I also thought, like, why didn't anyone ever tell me about this, you know? I think for most people, maybe it's not a big deal or really relevant, but I just was so shocked. It was like seeing a beautiful piece of artwork or hearing music for the first time. Like, I just never knew it was out there. 
Sarah is now one of the leading astrophysicists in the world. And she has one main goal in mind. My life's obsession for planets is to find another planet like Earth, one with water and continents and with signs of life in the atmosphere. Which could be possible one day. Because just in the past 10 years, scientists like Sarah have made incredible discoveries about planets outside our solar system. And up until relatively recently, we only knew of the existence of a small handful of these exoplanets. But today, scientists like Sarah Seeger have identified thousands. So, so help me understand this. We are on planet Earth, the pale blue dot, in a, let's, let's just call our solar system our, a neighborhood, like our, our block in our galaxy. Then, like, what's beyond there? What do we know about what's beyond that? Right. Well, just to build our solar system would be like a very, very busy neighborhood block. In addition to the planets, we have the asteroid belt. And even beyond our last eighth planet, we have the Kuiper belt, which Pluto's a part of. But beyond that, uh, there's not really a whole lot, actually. It's trillions of miles to the nearest star. So it's quite empty, actually. Um, Stars are really quite spread out in our, our block of the galaxy. But what's amazing is that our galaxy is filled with hundreds of billions of stars, many of them like our own sun. Hundreds of billions of suns in our own galaxy. It's amazing, yes. There are hundreds of billions of solar systems in our own galaxy. I mean, that's what we're thinking because we have evidence that most stars have planets. And so, yes, we're thinking that each of those stars, each of those suns has many planets. So if our solar system has eight planets, right, we have to assume that there are at least maybe hundreds of billions of other planets in our galaxy. Billions and billions of planets, that's right. And that's just one galaxy in the universe of galaxies. Right. I mean, we think that our universe has billions and billions of galaxies, hundreds of billions of galaxies. And Sarah thinks that on one of those billions of planets, in one of those billions of billions of galaxies, some form of life has to exist. It's just a matter of finding the right exoplanet. And as Sarah Seeger explained from the TED stage, we've already ruled out quite a few. Are we alone? Is there life out there? Who is out there? You know, this question has been around for thousands of years, since at least the time of the Greek philosophers, but I'm here to tell you just how close we're getting to finding out the answer to this question. It's the first time in human history that this really is within reach for us. And I have a couple of favorite exoplanets to tell you about. This one is Kepler-10b. It's a hot, hot planet. It orbits over 50 times closer to its star than our Earth does to our sun. And actually, it's so hot, we can't visit any of these planets, but if we could, we would melt long before we got there. We think the surface is hot enough to melt rock and has liquid lava lakes. Please 1214b. This planet, we know the mass and the size, and it has a fairly low density. It's somewhat warm. We actually don't know really anything about this planet, but one possibility is that it's a water world like a scaled-up version of one of Jupiter's icy moons that might be 50% water by mass. And in this case, it would have a thick steam atmosphere overlaying an ocean, not of liquid water, but of an exotic form of water, a superfluid, not quite a gas, not quite a liquid. And under that wouldn't be rock, but a form of high-pressure ice. So out of all these planets out there, and the variety is just simply astonishing, we mostly want to find the planets uh, that are Goldilocks planets, we call them. Not too big, not too small, not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. So when, when you, I mean, in your sort of search for the, the perfect Earth-like planet, I mean, we've gotten pretty close, right? We are aware of several planets now that are in that Goldilocks zone, that are just the right distance from their star to be habitable, aren't we? Well, we're so close yet so far Hmm. because really the planets are so different from what we might imagine. We actually don't know anything about them other than their size or their mass and their distance. Let's think about our Earth for a moment here. 
And people are worried about our Earth warming by adding parts per million of carbon dioxide, right? So on our planet, we talk about this thing called the Keeling Curve and, you know, how we're adding greenhouse gases in tiny quantities. Imagine for a moment that a planet like our Earth doesn't have just parts per million more carbon dioxide, but has 100 times more or 1,000 times more carbon dioxide. Wow, I mean, that planet all of a sudden would be so hot. We can imagine planets that would be in the so-called habitable zone, but because of their atmosphere, which acts like a giant blanket, the planet might be literally suffocating at the surface and too hot for life. So we actually have a ways to go. We know that there are lots of planets in their star's habitable zones. That gives us confidence, but we still need a lot more information. But what would happen if, if we did find another Earth? Like, wh- wh- what would that actually mean? <laughs> the funny thing is we're so fixated on just trying to find the planet. Believe it or not, we haven't given too much thought about, about what we do what next. We do, yeah. So, Well, we would do a lot of things, probably. The first thing we would do, though, as scientists, we feel a heavy burden of proof. So the types of things that we spend a lot of time working on and debating is what is an Earth? You know, how will we find it? What is what is the observational evidence that we could shout out to the world? Yay, we found it finally. Hmm. But everyone would do lots of things. SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, will listen in on that planet and try to see if there's actually anything going on there in the radio. Any alien civilization trying to send us a signal. I think the people trying to send probes at fast speeds will accelerate their activities. So I think that finding an Earth would galvanize many, many different groups of people. Yeah. I mean, do you ever, are there ever moments where you're, where you get discouraged or are you just, is the idea of finding this so, is it such a motivator that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if it, if it never happens? Okay, I'm convinced it will happen someday. There has to be a planet like Earth out there. There are untold numbers of sun-like stars, and it's really that Earth is just out there waiting to be found. I don't know if we'll find it soon. I don't know what the landscape is in politics and money and in technology development. So we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, it's going to happen. It's got to be out there somewhere. Sarah Seeger... She's an astrophysicist and professor at MIT. You can see her full talk at TED.com. You can also see some cool images of travel posters to exoplanets that Sarah showed in her talk at our Facebook page. must be really, really dark at night in the Australian desert. Oh, it's just phenomenal. I mean, no lights. You see the Milky Way stream up above the horizon, billions of stars casting this huge glow over the desertscape. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. This is Natasha Hurley-Walker. She's a radio astronomer. Yeah, that's right. So I'm an astrophysicist who uses radio telescopes and supercomputers to explore our universe. And radio telescopes, like the one Natasha works with, they're a lot different than optical telescopes. And if you just imagine an optical telescope for a second... You probably think of a tube with lenses and mirrors, and they're all designed to observe visible light waves coming from outer space. But radio telescopes are made up of multiple dishes or metal receivers, and these telescopes are designed to observe radio waves, which is why Natasha works in the desert outside Perth in Western Australia. Right, because we have a fantastically radio-quiet site up in the desert where there's a radio exclusion zone. There's only about 100 people in an area about the size of the Netherlands, so the quality of the reception we can get in terms of radio is phenomenal. Now, radio astronomers like Natasha work with radio telescopes because optical telescopes have some limitations. Natasha explains from the TED stage. If you were to go to a darker part of the sky, you might see the center of our Milky Way galaxy spread out before you, hundreds and billions of stars. Just with our own eyes, we can explore a little corner of the universe. It's possible to do better. You can use wonderful telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, astronomers have put together this image. It's called the Hubble Deep Field. And in this image, you can see thousands of galaxies, and we know that there must be hundreds of millions, billions of galaxies in the entire universe. So you think, okay, well, I can continue this journey. This is easy. I can just use a very powerful telescope and just look at the sky, no problem. It's actually really missing out if we just do that. 
Now, that's because everything I've talked about so far is just using the visible spectrum, just the thing that your eyes can see. And that's a tiny slice, a tiny, tiny slice of what the universe has to offer us. Now, say you're standing on a corner, an ambulance approaches, has a high-pitched siren. The siren appeared to change in pitch as it moved towards and away from you. The sound waves, as the ambulance approached, were compressed and they changed higher in pitch. As the ambulance receded, the sound waves were stretched and they sounded lower in pitch. The same thing happens with light. Objects moving towards us, their light waves are compressed and they appear bluer. Objects moving away from us, their light waves are stretched and they appear redder. So we call these effects blue shift and red shift. Our universe is expanding, so everything is moving away from everything else. And that means everything appears to be red. Now, eventually, we get so far away, everything is shifted into the infrared, and we can't see anything at all. So is it at that point where we need radio telescopes to look even further beyond what an optical telescope can see? Yeah, so if you just look at optical telescopes, you basically, the universe kind of thins out. It gets red and then kind of vanishes. So we build infrared space telescopes. Now that's more difficult because the universe has a lot of infrared stuff in it. So all the gas in our galaxy, all of the um, exploding stars, they produce a lot of infrared as well. So there's a lot of contamination in that signal. The nice thing about radio is it does just punch through. So... So how has the technology of these telescopes changed or, or improved in the past few years? So some of the technology has changed, but for the low-frequency radio astronomy, we were doing that back in the 50s and 60s. The very first person to build a radio telescope was uh, Grote Reber. Uh, he just went, okay, I've heard about people picking up radio from the, the stars. I'm going to build an imaging telescope and I'm going to make a map of the Milky Way. And he just did it in his backyard in his spare time. Um, and that, that map is still accurate. It's, it's still dead on today. What has changed is the computing. So originally, we could only build radio telescopes with one or two elements. But nowadays, we have incredible supercomputers. So we can put down many telescopes in all different locations and then knit the signals together. So my telescope, for instance, has 128 different elements and it knits them all together seamlessly to produce these incredible images of the sky. So it's, it's really about the computing. Um, that's what makes that possible. In just a minute the amazing things Natasha and her team discovered by using those radio telescopes and supercomputers. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash radio hour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks also to Gastropod. It's a podcast about food, history, and science. But really, it's all about the weird and wonderful things you never knew about the stuff you put into your mouth every day. You'll hear how the mafia got its start in the citrus business and want to know whether your extra virgin olive oil is the real deal or whether it's worth taking vitamins. Gastropod has that covered too. Find Gastropod and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about another show that I happen to host. It's called How I Built This. And every week, I speak with founders behind some of the most incredible companies about how they did it. You can find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today peering deeper into space. And before the break, we were talking with Natasha Hurley-Walker. She's been doing research using a new radio telescope in the desert of Western Australia. And from the TED stage, Natasha showed off some of the results of her observations. 
I have spent the last five years working with very difficult, very interesting data that no one had really looked at before. So I'm delighted to share with you some images from this survey. The colors in this image tell us about the physical processes going on in the universe. So for instance, this is a local radio galaxy, Centaurus A. If we zoom in on this, we can see that there are two huge plumes going out into space. And if you look right in the center of between those two plumes, you'll see a galaxy just like our own. But if we looked in the visible, we wouldn't even know they were there. And they're thousands of times larger than the host galaxy. What's going on? What's producing these jets? At the center of every galaxy that we know about is a supermassive black hole. Now, black holes are invisible. Um, all you can see is the deflection of the light around them. And occasionally, when a star or a cloud of gas comes into their orbit, it is ripped apart by tidal forces, forming what we call an accretion disk. The accretion disk glows brightly in the X-rays, and huge magnetic fields can launch the material into space. So these jets are visible in the radio, and this is what we pick up in our survey. Well, very well, so we've seen one radio galaxy, but if you just look at the top of that image, you'll see another radio galaxy. It's a little bit smaller, and that's just because it's further away. Okay, two radio galaxies. Well, what about all the other dots? Presumably, those are just stars. They're not. They're all radio galaxies. Every single one of the dots in this image is a distant galaxy, millions to billions of light years away, with a supermassive black hole at its center, pushing material into space at nearly the speed of light. It is mind-blowing. And this survey is even larger than what I've shown here. If we zoom out to the full extent of the survey, you can see I found 300,000 of these radio galaxies. So it's truly an epic journey. We've discovered all of these galaxies right back to the very first supermassive black holes. Is there a limit? I mean, is there a fixed point where, where we just won't be able to observe beyond that point? Uh, essentially, yes, we will never be able to observe outside our own light horizon. So if you think back that the universe is 13.67 billion years old, if you look 13.67 billion light years away, you see back in time and you're looking at like nothing. So we can't see outside this bubble that's about 13.7 billion light years in radius. But we don't know that that is the size of the universe. Uh, so while I was in Cambridge, um, there's the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, which is where Stephen Hawking works. And uh, I, I go to all the seminars. I went to one which was called um, Observable Limits of the Universe. And uh, it was almost comprehensible, at least for about five slides. Uh, and then I got lost. There was a lot of math. Anyway, the authors concluded that the universe is at least 30 times larger than what we can see in our light horizon. So if you imagine we're looking in a sphere, um, the volume of that sphere, 13.7 billion light years cubed um, times four thirds pi, uh, times that by 30, that is the minimum size of the universe. But they didn't rule out the universe being infinitely sized, which is really hard to get your head around. I mean, it's, it's incredible that the scope of our understanding and knowledge of the cosmos has expanded in such a way that we probably know and have learned more in the past five years than, than we learned in the previous 25 years, right? Absolutely. And, and presumably there's going to be more and bigger things coming, coming at us in the near future. I think what's really become clear over the last decade is that the questions we're now asking uh, require hundreds of scientists, thousands of scientists working really in uh, coordination and collaboration uh, on, on really enormous projects. But even amongst all that, all these huge mega projects, there's still like little teams just coming up with really clever ideas and putting some stuff in the field. So uh, I guess one example, like our telescope started out as a real kind of 
just some cowboys in the desert type thing. So originally the Murchison Widefield Array was just a few dipoles and we just were, you know, taking measurements. And then we built two elements and then we built four elements, then we built eight elements. And so we're sort of slowly building up this idea of, of how to build a really great radio telescope. Um, so there's these huge mega projects, but there's also still little groups just doing cool things. So yeah, I just think it's a fantastic time to be in science. It's It's really exciting. Natasha Hurley-Walker, she's an astronomer working at the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, peering deeper into space. And we want to find out more about black holes, like the ones Natasha was just describing in her TED talk. Yes. And I just have to be honest, I'm not sure that there are that many things that are as cool as a black hole. I'm just saying. This is Jedida Eisler. She's an astrophysicist who studies black holes. Yeah, it's amazing. Which Jedida says are one of the most mysterious forces in the entire universe. For certain. So we all have some idea of what a black hole is, right? These massive things that are formed by the death of a star and then they suck everything in, even light. But it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, it's one of those things that is both ubiquitous and also still widely misunderstood. So they are something that's so massive that there's just nothing has enough energy to get out, not even light itself. That's what makes them unique is that they're they're a thing in the universe that doesn't shine. It doesn't give off any light at all, period. And that's why we call them black. And is it like a giant drain pipe? No, they're just, they're not just like sucking up everything all the way around indiscriminately. They're not vacuums in space. Oh, I mean, I still am imagining this incredibly powerful magnet-type vacuum that's just mm-hmm. drawing everything around it for, you know, vast distances, just drawing it in. The easiest way that I can think of is to think about the fact that these black holes, they are spinning. And basically everything in space is spinning. And so there is energy that's associated with that spin that keeps things from falling in. It's like you're sitting on a record spinning around. And as long as that record is going, then you're going to stay where you are. And as Natasha Hurley-Walker pointed out just a few minutes ago in her TED Talk, Not all black holes are alike. For example, supermassive black holes. Yes, yes, exactly. So a supermassive black hole is a black hole that is a million to a billion times the mass of our own sun. So we're really talking about the largest um, black holes that can be measured. And Judaida happens to study supermassive, hyperactive black holes, which she explains from the TED stage. These galactic black holes are devouring material at a rate of upwards of a thousand times more than your average supermassive black hole. (laughs) These two characteristics, with a few others, make them quasars. The objects I study are producing some of the most powerful particle streams ever observed. These narrow streams, called jets, are moving at 99.99% of the speed of light and are pointed directly at the Earth. These jetted, Earth-pointed, hyperactive, and supermassive black holes are called blazars, or blazing quasars. What makes blazars so special is that they're some of the universe's most efficient particle accelerators, transporting incredible amounts of energy throughout a galaxy. The dinner plate by which material falls onto the black hole is called the accretion disk, Some of that material is slingshotted around the black hole and accelerated to insanely high speeds in the jet. Although the blazar system is rare, the process by which nature pulls in material via a disk and then flings some of it out via a jet is more common. Okay, so you have these these massive black holes devouring all this stuff, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And, and they've got these really powerful jets moving out at like 99% of the speed of light, and they're just pushing energy back out into the universe. Yes. And you said these are pointed directly at Earth? Yes. Okay, so so let me just understand this. Does this mean that at some point we here on Earth are going to be swallowed by these quasars? 
Well, no, we're at a safe distance, so we won't be swallowed by them, but we do receive light that comes from them. Huh. Yeah. So the thing that allows us to observe them the way that we do is that they are, they just happen to be aligned towards the Earth line of sight. But because they're very far away, we call that cosmological distance, um, they're not going to impact us. Phew, I was, I was worried. One of the hot topics in Blazar astrophysics right now is where the highest energy jet emission comes from. Clear answers to this question were almost completely inaccessible until 2008, when NASA launched a new telescope that better detects gamma-ray light. That is, light with energies a million times higher than your standard X-ray scan. I simultaneously compare variations between the gamma-ray light data and the visible light data from day to day and year to year to better localize these gamma-ray blobs. As we more confidently localize where these gamma-ray blobs are forming, we can better understand how jets are being accelerated and ultimately reveal the dynamic processes by which some of the most fascinating objects in our universe are formed. So you mentioned that everything changed in 2008 because, uh, because NASA launched a new satellite that year, which yes. was, I think that was Fermi, right? Yes. So, so that was the thing that really revolutionized your field? That's right. How would happen? So blazars, I mean, we've known about them for decades. Um, we've known that they have these jets. We've known that most of the light that comes from blazars comes at high energies, comes at gamma-ray energies. So we launched Fermi. And the reason why that has been revolutionary for our field is because it means that you constantly have a measure of how many gamma rays, and that means the things that are spitting out the most energetic things we can see, you get a sense of what those are. Like how, how much has that expanded our, our knowledge of how many quasars or blazars are out there? You know, we colloquially call Fermi a blazar finder. Huh. It literally has, like, found so many blazars. I, I think at last count we were upwards of 3,000. Wow. Right. Like That's in 10 years, less than 10 years. I would say we went from hundreds to thousands. Wow. And there are, of course, black holes in our very yes. own galaxy, right? Yes. So it depends on the mass of the black hole you're talking about. So we have our own supermassive black hole, which we call Sagittarius A star. It sits at the center of our galaxy. Right, of course. Right at the center of our galaxy is yep. a supermassive black hole. That's right. And at the center of, of every other galaxy as well, right? We think as a community that the answer is that, yes, absolutely, there is a supermassive black hole at the center of every galaxy. And in fact, what we thought at first was that only the most massive galaxies would have these supermassive black holes. But what we found as we've been able to look at smaller and smaller and smaller galaxies is that they actually have supermassive black holes at the center of their galaxies, too. I mean, if we, we think about things in terms of the solar system, right? That's our neighborhood in, yes. in our galaxy. And we we spin around the sun and the sun is the center of our solar system. But actually, black holes are really the center of everything. Yes, yes. So if you looked at a picture, let's say of Andromeda, which is our neighboring galaxy, it looks like a little spiral. And at the very center of that spiral is the supermassive black hole. And in principle, we call it the gravitational center. That's where the most mass of the system sits. Hmm. Since everything is spinning, so the black hole is spinning on its axis and the galaxy is spinning around the black hole, everything has energy to keep it where it is. And it's only the things that get close enough that the black hole can basically erode <laughs> um, some of the energy that it has that it is able to fall in. So if you could have a suit, like a space suit that would mm -hmm. protect you, because I know you would die, but let's say you could, you had this really <laughs> awesome space suit that's air conditioned and you have like a, you know, movies in there and a popcorn machine. It was like, it's like one of those first class seats, you know, right. like a transatlantic flight. Um, you know, what would happen? Like you get sucked in and is it like Matthew McConaughey in that movie where like you can just pick which direction? Oh my happens? goodness. And it's just so funny because like Interstellar is legit. Like, my favorite science movie. Oh, really? <laughs> like, I am a nerd, and, like, I, like, legit shed a tear. I was like, oh, but it's so beautiful. Even though you knew it was all BS. <laughs> it didn't matter. It didn't matter, it's, right? It's beautiful. It's so cool. All right, so let's say you can just go into it, like, interstellar style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, what, what would happen? What would you see around you? So... 
you know, what happens to you as your approach to a black hole is among some of the most uh, exotic physics out there because now you've got very strong gravity pulling on you. And, you know, when you're standing on the planet, right, you're just, wherever you're standing right now, there's slightly more pulling on you from the top of your head to your feet just because of the way that gravity works, right? Yeah. Um, that same effect is magnified in a galaxy-sized way. You would just be squashed. You, it would, it's sort of the other direction that like <laughs> your head's not going towards a black hole as fast as your feet. And oh. so you're sort of stretched out. My God. But yeah, it would not be pleasant. But what if it could be pleasant? You had like snacks and you were safe from that. Mm. What, what, you're traveling in that black hole and like, does it stop? You know, this is the place where physics and philosophy have to break, right? Yeah. Once you get inside, we're in the philosophy, and I'm just not credentialed to do that, guy. But if you could travel to a black hole, like, you would, you'd go for it, right? Oh, I'd, in a minute. Yeah. And then I'd, like, take out my iPhone, and I'd record the whole thing, and I'd be like, see, yeah. I told y'all. Astrophysicist Jedida Eisler. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars. It's a hundred thousand light years side to side. It bulges in the middle, 16,000 light years thick. But out by us, it's just 3,000 light years wide. We're 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Peering Deeper into Space, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner with help from Daniel Shukin and Benjamin Klempe. Our intern is Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also write us directly at tedradiohour at npr.org, and you can tweet us. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.